evening. You're very welcome to our prayer meeting and Bible study this evening. And uh, those that are joining us on live stream, it's good to see you as well. We're going to begin with the singing of, of this hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And we're going to think about the life of C.H. Spurgeon tonight, and this must have been one of his favourite hymns, because uh, he had these words inscribed on his tombstone. So 281, there is a fountain filled with blood. Oh, man. 
scriptures to 1st Corinthians chapter 1 please. First Corinthians chapter 1 and we will read from the verse 17. First Corinthians chapter 1 reading from verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise, where is the scribe, where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Amen. We know that God will bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come into your holy presence. We thank you for what we have been singing. We thank you for that fountain filled with blood. We thank you that it was drawn indeed from Emmanuel's veins. We thank you for the day that we plunged beneath the flood and loosed all our guilty stain. We thank you we have trodden the same path that the the dying thief trod, not that our experience was similar in relation to the things of this world, but we have too experienced that assurance of eternal life, that one day we will be with the Lord in paradise. And so Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we consider the life of a servant of thine who served you and knew God's blessing upon his ministry so many years ago. And may that blessing thrill our hearts and encourage us and inspire us to serve you and so we commit ourselves unto you in the name of our saviour amen and amen i thought tonight we would think about the life of spurgeon spurgeon is a household name amongst evangelical christians which is a remarkable thing because he was a victorian preacher uh, so he, he didn't live in any of our lifetimes but yet, he is a name that we're so familiar with 
His books adorn the bookshelves of many Christian homes and you'll get into the Christian bookshop and you will still see the books of C.H. Spurgeon. And you frequently hear preachers <coughs> quoting from C.H. Spurgeon. He lived in a period of great preachers. It was a time when God's blessing was upon our nation in the most dramatic fashion. In London, where he ministered, you had Joseph Parker in the city temple. And he built that great building that seated thousands. And people flocked to hear him. Then you had Spurgeon at Elephant Castle, preaching in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And thousands flocked to hear him. And they were not the only preachers. You go to Manchester and hear Alexander McLaren. And throughout the nation, there were great preachers. And God's blessing was upon the ministry of the gospel in a way that we could not begin to understand. But I suppose of them all, Spurgeon has become known as the Prince of Preachers. I don't know where that title came from, and it certainly wouldn't have been one that he would have readily accepted. But nevertheless, as we think upon his life and upon his ministry and the blessing that flows still from his pen, we must say that he indeed was the Prince of Preachers, a unique man whom God raised up for a special purpose. And we have been thinking in our prayer meetings upon revival. And this, of course, was the century of revival. It was the period of revival. His ministry passed through 1859, which was a time of great awakening here in Scotland. And it was one of the highest years for new numbers being added to the church in the tabernacle. So it, that was a time of blessing in London as well. So he, he saw revival, he, he lived through it. And I think that in itself should encourage us in this dark day in which we live. A birth and heritage, born on the 19th of June, 1834. Now, he himself became a Baptist, but he was not from a Baptist background. His folks were independents. That means they were congregationalists. And the congregationals prided themselves in their independence. Every church was independent of each other. And every church was governed in a very democratic way by, by its members. And his father was a congregationalist minister. His, his grandfather was a congregationalist minister. That, that, that's his father there. His father was John Spurgeon. His grandfather was James Spurgeon. But apparently he could trace his lineage back four generations. A man who preached the gospel. And he preached the gospel for a very long time. For example, his father lived until he was well in his 90s. And I don't think he preached until that time. But he ministered for a long time. And apparently his grandfather was an extremely gifted preacher. And he, he would visit his grandfather's library especially. He was fascinated by books. The one book that stood out in the library whenever he was a, a boy was Fox's Book of Martyrs. And of course, of all of the books that shaped and fashioned England apart from the scriptures, the Fox's Book of Martyrs was that book because it was the book that told the stories of the horrors of the, the Protestant reformers and how they were burned to death. And that in itself was such an inspiration for many and it was certainly an inspiration for the young Spurgeon. But Charles Spurgeon grew up in that family and in that lineage being exposed to the gospel, being exposed to the things of God, and he was not converted. He did not know Christ as his saviour. Having such a blessed background did not save him, nor will it save any of our children.
God's grace had to come to him. Now he was brought up in a, a Calvinistic background. The doctrines of grace, the idea that God has chosen us unto eternal life, that Christ went to the cross to die for us particularly, that the Holy Spirit draws us irresistibly to himself and that we will persevere to the very end. A work of God's grace from beginning to end. These were the things he was steeped in. These were the things that were preached from his father's pulpit, his grandfather's pulpit. And he did not know Christ. He would have known the doctrine. He would have known God's word, but he did not know Christ. And apparently he had undergone a period of deep, deep conviction of sin as a teenage boy. Deep conviction of sin uh, because uh, he did not know Christ. And it was while going to this church or Tillery Street Methodist Chapel and, and he, was, he, was, he was from Essex so, so he grew up in Essex as his father and his grandfather had preached in Essex and when he went to this church one January and it wasn't a church that he would have ever gone to it was a Methodist church so it was, it was an Arminian church so the type of doctrines that were taught from this pulpit where the gospel was still preached but there's an emphasis here upon man and upon man's works that he would have not been familiar with. But nevertheless, he went there because there was snow in the ground and he couldn't go to the usual church. And, and he was away from home at this time. He, was, he, he had been sent to school and his father had ambitions that he should be a, a school teacher. He did become a school teacher for a period before he went to preach. And uh, as he went into this church, he sat underneath the gallery. And I think that plaque on the wall, just at the corner, that marks the spot where he sat just below the gallery. And because there was snow in the ground, the preacher couldn't come. And so one of the elders got up to preach. And the man couldn't preach. And he had nothing to say. And the only thing he could say was this text, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God. There is none else. And he kept looking down at young Charles Spurgeon and said to him, Young man, you need to look, you need to look to Christ. If you're going to be saved, you have to look. And that was the night that C.H. Spurgeon was converted. That was the night he came to Christ, 16 years of age. And the Lord did a work in his heart that stood eternity. He would say later, a Methodist church was a very good place for sinners to go to, but don't send Christians there. He, he said once they get saved, uh, he, all, he never forgot his Calvinistic background and, uh, and, and he didn't go for the Arminianism that the Methodists taught, but that didn't mean he wasn't grateful for the gospel that they preached. He was indeed very grateful for that. Interestingly enough, he, 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 he didn't join with the independents after he was converted, he joined with the Baptists. And his father and his grandfather and all his relatives before him would have baptised children. The congregation was believed in baptising children. But very quickly he came to the view that it's not right to baptise children. And he came to that opinion. And so he joined with the Baptists. And he wrote to his mother and father. And he asked them, for he was staying away from home, he asked them if they would... Uh, if they'd be happy to pronounce their blessing upon him, leaving the independence and joining with the Baptists. And apparently it took his father quite a long time to reply. And his mother, well, she, she perhaps was a little bit more impulsive. She did reply. And she said, Charles, we have prayed for you that you might get saved, and we are rejoiced that you're saved, but we didn't pray that you might join the Baptists. And uh, 
He wrote back and he said, Well, Mother, the Lord hath done even more exceeding abundantly above all we could ever ask or think. He always had this, this knack of using words and sense of, a sense of wit. And uh, he, he was baptized by total immersion and he joined a local Baptist uh, assembly in Cambridge. And there he threw in his lot. And when he joined with this church, he was asked to speak on one occasion, just as a, a boy of 16, 17. And the, the man that asked him to preach, one of the elders in the church, was struck with, this is not an ordinary young boy, he could preach. And he noted his, his amazing gifts. And before long, he, he got other invitations to preach and other invitations to preach. And then, eventually, he went to a place called Waterbeach. The people heard him preach and they said, would you become our minister? He was only, I think he was only 17. Would you become our minister? And so he became a minister of the gospel, pastoring this country congregation. <coughs> now, there was a man called Ebenezer Smith. Ebenezer Smith would write later about his encounters with the young Spurgeon because he went to that church and he heard him preach. In fact, the young Spurgeon had the habit of going and staying at the houses of the congregation. He thought he had to get to know the people well, so he would stay overnight, house to house. And then he would, he would pastor them and he would witness to them and he would talk to them about the things of God. And Ebenezer Smith testified to being under deep conviction of sin, listening to the young Spurgeon in the home. And he stayed with them that night, and then this is what Ebenezer Smith wrote about the next morning. The next morning he preached his marvellous sermon on the final conflagration. One of the most awful sermons that was ever heard from a Christian pulpit. Men and women swayed in agony. It was a mental torture unknown in our churches today. It seemed as though he shook his audience over the pit until the smoke of God's wrath filled their eyes and made them weep and entered their throats until they gasped for mercy. It was not done for effect. The power lay in the fact that it was real to the preacher. He had lived through a nightmare of a terrible experience and it was being used to a holy purpose. And there he was referring to the deep conviction of sin that the young Spurgeon experienced. He was deeply in earnest and men knew it. He never preached a religion. He had simply learned, but a truth that had been cut into his soul by a deep and rich experience. It appears that he saw a revival in Water Beach. Many, many people were converted. The little church was packed. Souls that came to the Lord. The young pastor was being blessed by God, but it was not God's will for him to remain in Water Beach. He got an invitation to come to Park Street in London. And he preached there several times. Now, the New Park Street church doesn't exist today. I'm not even sure if New Park Street exists in London today. One of those places that have disappeared over the years. And it, it was a very famous church. It was the church of John Rippon, famous old preacher. Benjamin Keach, one of the New Old Puritans that preached here. It was a very famous congregation. So it was a church that could seat 1,200 people. But when the young Spurgeon went to it, some reports say there was 80, some reports say there was 200. A uh, congregation of 200 seems good to us today. <coughs> In those days, a congregation of 1,200 in London 
it was a church that had fallen into bad times. Uh, God was not blessing, and that's how they felt. And so they had tried different men to come to preach, and they couldn't settle on anyone. Then this young boy came in from the country and preached, and the people said, this is to be our preacher. And after preaching for them for several times, he agreed to accept the call. And so in April 1854, only 19 years of age, he went to New Park Street in London to be the minister of the gospel in this place. He didn't much go in for clerical attire. He, he, he didn't really like the title of reverend, although it was given to him. His publisher thought it would look better to have it on the publication. So when you see publications, you see the reverend, but the later publications of pastor, he managed to persuade them to drop, to drop the reverend. But um, he was quite an impetuous young man. There's a very amusing story. The Lord really came and blessed his early ministry. In fact, whenever you look at the, the volumes of sermon, Spurgeon's sermons, it is said by many, many people that the New Park Street pulpit, which are the first six volumes, his first six years of ministry in London, they are, they are the cream of Spurgeon. And, and that was his earliest preaching. And they are the best to read. And he was there just a short time and there was problems. The, the place was packed out. Packed out, 1,200 people. Couldn't get anybody in. And the place was really, really hot. And the windows couldn't be opened. And Spurgeon had spoke to the deacons and says, we, we need to open these windows. We need to get new windows. We need windows that can open. The, the people are suffocating. It's too hot. And they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't spend the money. Then one day they came to church and the windows were all put out. And um, Spurgeon said, see the, the person that put those windows out, we should find out who they are and they should receive a fine for five pounds. And then after they get the five, uh, after they pay us the fine, we should give it back to them. Because um, that person should be paid for what he did. He did it himself. He put the windows out himself. And uh, because he said, the people be there, that they might hear the word of God. Uh, New Park Street had to be renovated to accommodate the people. And during the period of its renovation, he went to Exeter Hall. Exeter Hall was a, a vast auditorium, seating many more, I think maybe 6,000 people could go into the Exeter Hall. That doesn't exist now uh, either. That was on the Strand in London. He had two periods of ministry in the Exeter Hall. And of course, that gave him a much wider audience. This was a music hall. And this was. One of Spurgeon's characteristics, he, he broke the mold. So he, he would go to places where no preacher had ever gone. This was a place of secular entertainment. It was like going to the theatre and having it opened up to the gospel. He said, if we can get the people in, preach the gospel to them, he said, we're doing good. And thousands, they came to hear him. And this awakened many more to his ministry. And then as numbers swelled again, they, they went to the music hall at Royal Surrey Gardens. And this was a vast auditorium that seated 12,000. And to think of 12,000 people in hearing this young man preaching the gospel. But a terrible event happened at the, the Royal, uh, at the music hall at, at the Royal Surrey Gardens. One particular night, <coughs> uh, as he was 
preaching, there was a whole commotion. And he didn't know what had happened when he tried to preach on. You can imagine in a place of that size, there could be a commotion in one place and the preacher wouldn't necessarily be fully aware of what's happening. Someone went up into the pulpit and said to him, Sir, you better stop. He was taken outside and he saw dead bodies being laid out. And he went away heartbroken. What had happened was some people had shouted out the galleries were giving way. And the galleries weren't giving way, but there was a panic and a stampede. And people were trampled to death. The text that he had set himself to preach that night, he never preached that text. Never preached that text. One time someone mentioned it and he, he said, oh, that was that night. He never got over that night. And he was prone to periods of deep despondency. And we would call it depression. And he had many, many dark roots. And this particular incident was one of the things that contributed to that spirit despondency that he was so afflicted with throughout much of his ministry. Which again is the most remarkable thing when you think of how God was blessing him. During these early years, he wasn't so much interested in the ladies. He was too busy preaching, but he did meet Susanna. And she wasn't really taken with him at the start. She said, I was not at all fascinated by the young orator's eloquence. The huge black satin stock, the long badly trimmed hair, and the blue pocket handkerchief with white spots. These attracted most of my attention, and I fear awakened some feelings of amusement. But uh, she got over all of that, and as she got to know the young Charles Spurgeon, she really loved him. And so the two were married on the 8th of January, 1856. She was a great help to him, as we'll learn a little later. And not only that, but they were blessed with twin boys, Thomas and Charles. Because of the way the buildings, the building, the church was growing and the need to use all these other venues, he, he saw it necessary to build the Metropolitan Tabernacle. At, at first, some were, well, they wondered, was it the right thing to do? Uh, to build a new church, but he had the vision to go ahead and so the people supported him. And so on March the 31st, 1861, the, the, the tabernacle was open. Now, this is taken from a London guide for the period. And you, you still see this today, of course. The, the, the tabernacle, the interior was destroyed. Uh, and the whole bit behind had to be rebuilt. But the front has always stayed the same. And you can go to the Metropolitan Tabernacle. <coughs> Peter Master preachers, preaches it. Uh, at uh, the Elephant and Castle, and you can see this this magnificent building, and it must have been one of the, the truly great sites. Over 6,000 people were packed into this building, and for the rest of Spurgeon's ministry, um, he, he preached to packed crowds every Sunday. There were no empty seats. And there were times when the regular congregation, they said, we not go so we can get new people in. And that was the manner in which his his ministry was blessed. There was a there was always a, a midweek prayer meeting, and that took place below the pulpit. There was a basement below the pulpit, and there was another auditorium there for prayer. Uh, when showing someone round the tabernacle one time, he took them down to the the place where the prayer was, and he said, "This is this is where the power is. Uh, the only reason why we have this blessing is because of these praying people." The biggest congregation he ever preached to was at the Crystal Palace. The Crystal Palace 
was a, a great venue that was made for the the National Exhibition of 1851. The National Exhibition was Queen Victoria and Prince Albert's idea. And the idea was that they would have this great exhibition to show off the, the wares of the empire. So you could come to London and you could go around this, this, this great venue. And it was called the Crystal Palace because it was made of glass. It was all glass. And you could, you could see what India was producing. You could see all these other countries. The great British Empire. And you, could, you could see all of the wealth of the empire, all the trade of the empire. And, and that, was, that was the idea. I, I think perhaps at the time of the Millennium, if you remember, they built the Millennium Dome. And that was a special venue people could come to in London. It was perhaps modeled on that a wee bit. But uh, the, the Crystal Palace actually was taken down from its original site and rebuilt again. Uh, and it stayed in place, I think, until the 1930s when it was finally destroyed. But a catastrophic event took place in India, the Indian Mutiny. There was many, many people were killed. And it was something that caused terrible alarm back home because, well, it felt as if the empire was under threat because the, the Queen, of course, was the Empress of India. And, and it was great national pride that, that England ruled India. There was this terrible mutiny. And then the mutineers were put down and there was the reprisals and there was the executions. It was a, a terrible time. And so there was this great meeting was convened at the Crystal Palace. Over 23,000 people came to it. It is reckoned that up until that time there had never been a larger indoor gathering of people in history. And Spurgeon preached. And listen to what he said. I feel persuaded that there are such things as national judgments, national chastisements for national sins, great blows from the rod of God, which every wise man must acknowledge to be either a punishment of sin committed or, a, or, 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 or an admonition to warn us to a sense of the consequences of sins, leading us by God's grace to humiliate ourselves and repent of our sin. Oh, my friends, what a rod is that which has just fallen upon our country. My poor words will fall infinitely short of the fearful tale of misery and woe, which must be told before you can know how smartly God hath smitten and how sternly he hath chidden us. We have today to mourn over revolted subjects, for today a part of our fellow countrymen are in open arms against our government. That of itself were a heavy blow. He didn't pull any punches, did he? This is God's judgment upon our country. God's dealing with us because of our sins on account of this terrible thing that has happened. Even the very fact that over 23,000 people were willing to go to listen to such a message, it shows us how far we have departed from God, doesn't it? One of his, his greatest projects was the, the penny pulpit. There you see his, his library. And uh, he had thousands of books. And I, I think it was Spurgeon who said, that uh, a preacher must be an avid reader of secular literature as well as a spiritual literature. And he had, he had a great library. Um, one of his um, hobbies was, was algebra. He did algebra to, to uh, amuse himself from time to time. But one of his greatest projects was the Kenny Pulpit. In his congregation, providentially, he had a prominent 
London publisher, a man called Passmore, Joseph Passmore. Passmore and Alabaster were his publishers. And every Monday morning, his, he, 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 didn't, he didn't write out his sermons. He would have headings and notes. But someone in the congregation <coughs> was writing out verbatim what he said. And so every Monday morning, he sat down with the secretary and he went through the words and did the editing. And then the Kenny Pulpit was sent out. And from, he went to New Park Street until he died, a penny pulpit was issued every week. So it was like our version of using Facebook or YouTube or any of these other media. And yes, we still use print media today, but sadly, people don't read today. This tragic reflection of the shallowness of modern society that people don't read. And even when they watch videos and they see 30 seconds, they turn it off. Apparently, is it? 70% of people in the UK now, I saw them, some of the national papers just last week, Daily Mail I think it was, um, they get their, their news from TikTok. Not BBC, not APM, not Sky News, TikTok. Just a few snippets here and there. Is, is it any wonder there's such a shallowness in society? Well, that's the depths to which our society have plummeted. And uh, all, all they want is one word here, one word there, and that's how they fashion their views and their opinions. And that's, that's where we're heading. And anybody would be challenged to read a Spurgeon sermon today. And yet they were avidly read. And they went in their thousands, and they went all over the world. And there's records of people getting converted from different parts of the world and ships and over the place just reading a Spurgeon sermon. And... Uh, they, they had a huge impact and it was one of the means by which his message outlived him because even after he died there was all of these sermons that were never published and so they continued to publish for a couple of decades after he died and then you've got the complete volumes the 65 or 66 volumes of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit to this present day it was a great work it was a work that outlasted the sound of his voice Something else he did was a sword in the trial. It was a monthly magazine. So again, this was read throughout the nation and further, far, far, further afield. The brother projects as well. There was publications, checkbook of the faith, morning and evening. Um, apart from the penny pulpit, perhaps his the, his work that preacher has certainly found tremendous value from was the Treasury of David, and the Treasury of David you get the value of his library. Because not only does he give you his own comments on the Psalms, it was originally published in seven volumes, but you have the, the comments of all of the commentators. So he tells you about all of these different writers, what they had to say about every Psalm and sometimes virtually every verse in every Psalm. And it, it's an amazing piece of work, the Treasury of David, one of the greatest commentaries in the Psalms that ever was. There was the pastor's college. He set up a, a pastor's college to train young men for ministry. He did not have the benefit of... Uh, of, of a Bible college education and he had longed for that as a young man but he didn't get it of course God's providence he didn't need it but that didn't mean to say he despised Bible college and so he set up a college and he, he paid for some of the students at his own expense to go through that they might be trained for ministry. Mrs Spurgeon did a book fund for poor pastors so she would have 
raise money for pastors who have little money in order that they might have good books to read and to study. And that, that was her ministry. It was a very special ministry. When I went to New Park Street, the, the, the church had something called almshouses. They were all virgin and old people's home. And they were there to keep people out of the workhouse. And Well, nobody wanted to go to the workhouse. It was a dreadful, dreadful place. And so there were these almshouses where the church actually looked after poor people who were elderly. They were to go and nobody looked after them. They were known as almshouses. That was a ministry he, he, he furthered, he supported, nodded to and then he had an orphanage as well in Victorian London. He had to read Dickens, it's all the social problems. And so he amongst with others did played his part to support the, 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 the legions of orphans that sadly lived in, in London in, in deprivation. These are just some of the things that he got into throughout his uh, ministry. This is the last photograph of Spurgeon, a bit of photograph. And he died at 56. He's an old man. He suffered from a lot of bad health. But many believe it wasn't his health that caused him to die at a young age. It was what was known as the downgrade controversy. In the 1880s, he was receiving letters from concerned Christians across Britain that their pastors weren't preaching the gospel. They were following new and novel ideas. They weren't teaching eternal punishment. They weren't teaching the atonement. They weren't teaching the sufficiency of scripture, the reliability of scripture. They were following German rationalism, a set of teachings that were coming in from Germany where it was said that all of these things were old fashioned. We must go a different way, a more educated way. And of course, Darwin had come along with his ideas and all of this was having a detrimental impact on the Church of Christ and Spurgeon was alarmed by this. What caused him most alarm was the fact that men that were teaching these things would not admit they were teaching these things. Of course there was no recordings. You couldn't go into certain audio and see what that fellow had preached. And so it was all very secretive and there was no open debate. No one would debate with Spurgeon. And he, he wrote to the leadership of the Baptist Union and he said, look, we need to put down a firm resolution. And the firm resolution must be that we are not just a society of churches that believe in baptizing people, but there are certain doctrines that you must believe to be part of this society. And they wouldn't do that. And Spurgeon didn't go as far as to name the men that he suspected of holding this heresy. Some said that he was wrong in doing it. He should have named them. But he wouldn't name them. But he felt he wasn't getting the support of the, the leadership of the Baptist Union. And so as a result of that, he, he left. He resigned. He felt there was no place for him. And he lost many of his friends. And even young men that he paid for to train through college, they would not take sides with Spurgeon. And it is believed that he died a broken man with a broken heart. But his congregation supported him. Supported him to the end. There was absolutely no problem there. They too as a whole, left the Baptist Union. These were times when he suffered severe physical health, as well as the dark moods that he had, the depression that he experienced from time to time. And one of his greatest afflictions was gout, and it caused him immense pain. 
And so he would spend the winter in Nento. And he did this for several years. He would leave his congregation uh, November, December, maybe January, spend three, four months away. Go to the south of France, go to Menton, said to this day to be the jewel and the pride of the British Riviera, a uh, place of such a perfect mix of climate. There you see him actually with his uh, secretary. And uh, he would minister there, he would write there, he would use his time well there, uh, he would preach to the English people who were abroad there. And so he would spend his time still for the Lord and he would communicate with his congregation at home. But it was at Menton that he died on the January 31st, 1892. And Harold, who was his secretary, sent that heartbreaking letter home that was put up in the gates of the tabernacle. Our beloved pastor entered heaven on Sunday night. And you have photographs of his cortege. This one is him leaving. Menton, and this is the great funeral entering Northwood Cemetery in London. And you can go and see his, his grave. I, I was there many, many years ago. And you see the words that were chosen for that grave. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wind supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. With this pearl, this big stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. You can see him as he passed through the various stages of life, from a young man to a middle-aged man suffering very bad health. His motto was the sword and the trial and the harp. I suppose that says it all. It was a battling. The sword of the spirit. There was a trial, the hard work, and then there was the harp, that sense of joy. We preach Christ crucified was his text. And he was a Calvinist, yes, but he was a Calvinist in the mode of Whitfield. The church was afflicted and still can be afflicted at times by a hard, dry Calvinism. A Calvinism that emphasizes the doctrine of election to the detriment of the free offer of the gospel. And when the balance gets out of sync, uh, it becomes a very dry Calvinism. There's no life in it. There's plenty of life in Spurgeon's preaching. And he exhorted sinners to come to Christ. It was said on one occasion that the congregation he went to in London were full of people of, of the old sort of hyper-Calvinist tradition. And he was criticised for preaching directly to sinners to come to Christ. And he said, well, if you put a chalk mark over the heads of God's elect, I'll preach to them. But because you can't do that, I'll preach to everyone. And of course, that's how we present the gospel to all men, knowing that God will in time bring his people to himself. It was a ministry that was remarkably blessed. Like Whitfield, a hundred years before him, he lived until he was just in his fifties. What a work he did. God blessed. And it was the Spirit of God, of course, filling that young man, that older man with the power of the Spirit of God. And can God do a work like that in our day? You know, he saw the beginnings of what Britain would become. He, he saw that departure from the faith and congregations were starting to dwindle as the, the false doctrine crept in. He saw all of that. He warned about it in the sword and the trial. And then the following century, 
What a terrible harvest to be reaped for that apostasy. And of course, what is apostasy? Apostasy isn't somebody just having a different idea about something and you have. Somebody having a different view about something a Christian should do or shouldn't do. Apostasy is about turning from the gospel of Christ. That's what he saw happening. And that should inspire us to hold on to the truth. For only the truth can set us free. So may the Lord bless these uh, little reflection on the life of C.H. Virgin to our hearts and to our souls. Let's get before the Lord for prayer and uh, thank all of those who have joined us on live stream and we'll say farewell to you now. So let's just seek the Lord.